you're listening to the Mix It Up podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the brilliance of LGBTQ plus creatives of the global majority who work across arts, culture, and entertainment. Hosted by Joey Reyes. Get ready to mix it up. Hi, everyone. My name is Joey Reyes, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mix It Up podcast. The Mix It Up podcast is a celebration of LGBTQ plus creatives of the global majority who work across all forms of arts, culture, and entertainment from really around the world. But this season, we're going to be starting with folks who are based in the United States. And hopefully in the future, we can expand and start and speak to folks uh, on an international level. That would be beautiful and a dream. As I said, my name is Joey Reyes. I am a creative producer, arts consultant, and cultural strategist based in the territory of the Council of Three Fires, otherwise known as Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am a newer resident of Chicago. I actually just moved this past summer of 2023 from Evanston uh, down into Chicago. But prior, prior to Evanston, I was living on the East Coast for five years yeah before I dive in and talk about you know my my who I'm going to be speaking with today I just wanted to give a little bit of a backstory of myself so you can get to know me a little bit as your host because you will be hearing my voice uh, across these next 10 weeks yeah just to give you a little background uh, before diving into the interview So I am originally from Southern California, and I am of Mexican descent on both sides of my family. I grew up born and raised in the Inland Empire of Southern California. And if you're familiar with that area, you know what it's like. Every time I I share that with folks who are not from Southern California, they have a little chuckle at the fact that it is called the Inland Empire. It is not a joke. It is what it's called, uh, San Bernardino and Riverside County of Southern California is referred to as the Inland Empire. I did my four years of undergraduate study at Azusa Pacific University in Azusa, California, where I got my bachelor's in theater arts and a minor in business administration and graduated. I'm class of 2016. Uh, which already feels like a million years ago, even though it's still less than a decade ago. But that's just because so much has happened since 2016 in my own life and also the world, quite a year. But right after graduating from APU, I made my way up to San Francisco and was a fellow at the American Conservatory Theater for their 50th anniversary season, where I worked in general and company management. Um, and got to know what exactly that meant, because in my four years of theater school, I had no lesson about what general and company management was. But yeah, after after that experience, I was working really hard to make get myself closer to New York City, which is where I really wanted to be um, as a theater artist and as someone who just really admired the city uh, through film and television a lot growing up uh, as a little kid in the desert of Southern California. Uh, so that then led me to start applying to other opportunities that would get me closer to New York. And that had me land in Cleveland, Ohio. And that was a really brief stint. I won't go into too much detail about that. But I was only there for three months when I was meant to be there, you know, a little longer than that. Um, but I made the decision to leave and then was left with 
the next decision of going back home to California or just kind of biting the bullet and making my way to New York City, which is what I ended up doing. So very abruptly picked up, packed my life up in four bags, um, had very little money in my bank account, had no job and no place to live lined up and made my way to New York City in November 2017. Don't really recommend that anyone does that. Is it the smartest thing? Probably not. But I managed to somehow make it all work out. The first month I was there, I was couch surfing (laughs) and, you know, I had some friends that were in the city already and managed to, you know, build up my little community very slowly and very uh, slowly but surely. But within a few months, I landed an internship at the public theater in general management. And for the first few months of 2018, that's where I landed. And things sort of just started to unravel and take off from there. So my career in theater really began to flourish uh, in New York City. And I ended up being there for two years, almost exactly, before making my way up Uh, to New Haven, Connecticut, where I worked uh, initially as the executive assistant at Long Wharf Theater and eventually becoming the line producer on staff. And simultaneously, I was also, uh, I first began as the producing assistant, which eventually became, uh, the title became associate producer for The Soul Project, which is a theater initiative that you're going to hear a little bit more about in this episode. It's one of the ways, it's the main way that I came to know my friend David, uh, who we're going to be talking to today. But yeah, uh, from 2019 to up until August of 2022, I was doing a lot of producing between New Haven and New York City, uh, working with amazing artists and beautiful people and just also really establishing my values as a creative myself and finding my passion and wanting to make sure that these stories of queer and trans people of color are being uplifted. What you might also hear me use throughout my conversations with folks is the term people of the global majority. Um, That is essentially another way of saying BIPOC, people of color, whatnot. I believe it's a term that's used more internationally as well, but it's meant to be inclusive and to also disrupt the narrative of us being minorities <laughs> because we are about 80 to 85 percent of the global population. So I like to use that term because it is decentering whiteness and focuses more on the fact that that culturally speaking, we are the majority of folks that exist in the world. So with that being said, I feel it goes without saying that here at the Mix It Up podcast, we're really dedicated to anti-racism, equity, diversity, and inclusion across arts, culture, and entertainment. That is really, you know, something that is important to the work that I do and integrated into the work of our guests, you know, very very intentionally, but also just baked into our value systems here. So I just want to make sure that that's very clear so you know what you're getting yourself into. Um, So As we move forward, um, I encourage you all to engage with us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram at mixitappod, and that's M-X-I-T-P-O-D. I probably should have said this earlier, but in case you don't know, the reason why the title of the podcast is Mix It Up is, well, I want to talk about mixing shit up. 
um, <laughs> getting us in positions of power and letting us take the reins of storytelling. Um, but also it's a nod to the gender neutral honorific mix instead of Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. MX uh, is defined as the gender neutral honorific. And so it's just a nod to the inclusion of LGBTQ plus identity that's really important to the podcast here um, and gender expansiveness. So that's, you know, that's kind of <laughs> my idea of why I wanted to name it uh, this way, you know, a little, a double entendre, as they say. But yes, enough of my ramblings. You're Like I said, you're going to be hearing my voice over the course of these next 10 weeks a lot. So with that, I want to share a little bit about our guest today. I'm going to be talking to my dear friend, David Menezabel, who is a director, designer, producer, and also the newly appointed associate artistic director at Berkeley Repertory Theater located in Berkeley, California. In addition to that, they're also one of the producing artistic leaders of the Obie Award-winning Movement Theater Company, which is based in New York City, and is also a founding collective member of the Obie Award-winning Soul Project Initiative. So that's how David and I know each other. Uh, they have directed all over New York City and all over the country. An incredibly talented director, David, is. Additionally, they are a 2021 Princess Grace Award Honoraria recipient in theater. Uh, they were also part of the inaugural Soho Rep Project Number no. 1 residency and are an alumnus of the Ars Nova Vision Residency, as well as the Drama League Directors Project, the Labyrinth Intensive Ensemble, Art Equity, NALAC, LCT Directors Lab, and the TCG Leadership U. David earned a BFA from New York University Tisch School of the Arts. So that's just a little bit of a background for David, but we're going to dive right in and hear from them directly and learn so much more about their life and what inspires them and what they've come to be. So sit back, relax, get ready, and we'll be right back. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are here with our guest, David Mendezabel. Welcome, welcome to Mix It Up. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm very excited. This is very special because, you know, we're not unfamiliar to this process together. We spent three whole seasons producing and co-hosting a podcast together for Soul Project. And that feels like a million years ago at this point. But um, yeah, I'm just... It's this feels familiar and I couldn't I couldn't imagine having anybody else being like my premiere episode guest. It was so fun and I was so honored to be asked. I was like, yes, I'm gonna pull out the microphone that we got. Thank you, Soul Project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I bought mine with my own money because I wanted to keep it. So <laughs> before we like get into your background, you know, all the like formalities and stuff, I want to bring up something that I texted you about very recently because I think this is very funny that this showed up um, and I would love to talk about this with you. So um, someone named Kate Reinking, she goes by Theater is Life on TikTok, um, yes. but she's also on, well, I guess not Twitter anymore. It's X. So she posted, she didn't tweet. She posted on X recently. She said, if you're a new director and I cannot stress this enough, do not or don't do transitions in the blackout. 
block transitions. Use them to tell a story. Don't have your audience sit in silence while furniture gets shuffled around. So obviously this is in relationship uh, or referencing theater specifically. Um, And you and I have had lots of conversations about this. So that's why I texted it to you immediately. So I just want you to expand on those thoughts, please. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of, you know, I started to go through and be like, what are, you know, like everyone has like their own catchphrases, right? Like what they're known for. And I started to like, be like, what are my catchphrases? And like one (laughs) of my things that I cannot stress enough and I say it and I mean it is blackouts are for bad directors. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, like not always, like I think there's, there's you, one can always earn that moment, mm-hmm. but I think it's, um, and it's exactly like my, my beliefs are exactly what the tweet said. You know, I think it's an opportunity, especially it's really the only opportunity you have as a director are your transitions to really show, you know, unless you're working on classic work and then, you know, the it's, it's about your vision. But as a director working mm-hmm. in new play, I think there's a space in between those transitions that really allows you to con- continue to connect the story for an audience, you know, and, and on the flip side, I think like you're doing too much in your transition is going to be like my next catchphrase, because like (laughs) that also can be true that it's like, oh, in an effort to try and over show, you know, Mm -hmm. like the point is like, I need to get this chair off stage and I need to get this sofa on stage, right? Like that's the main point. But Mm -hmm. if there is a way in which I can continue to grow the story. So like, can I have, can I distract the audience's eye over here and look at this person like, you know, reading a letter that just happened to be in the last scene and stay with that moment for five seconds as the main transition goes away. You know, I just think it helps connect the flow of some some of the story you know and Mm -hmm. uh uh i don't know when 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 it goes to blackout i feel like that's the moment where people a think it's over b reach (laughs) for their phone to Mm -hmm. like okay now like i have it's like you're giving time back to the audience right Mm -hmm. um as opposed to like, there are certain moments where it's like the only thing we can do here is blackout, right? Like, it's like, we have earned that moment. And like, actually what it does for an audience is like suspend them in that like sort of arresting moment, right? But if it's not suspending them in something, if it's literally just like stopping things so you could move furniture, I just think there there's a more interesting and artistic and storytelling version. And I think as a director and as a designer and as designers, you know, mm-hmm. like any opportunity you can get to continue to thread the needle of story to an audience is um, time worth taking. So yes, blackouts are for bad directors. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. It's just like at any time I like come across it or like see something in relationship to that, I'm always I always think of you immediately. It's so funny. <laughs> and I even like even in, in reading that tweet, I re- I was recalling um when I was in in undergrad that we did a production of an ideal husband um that I that I acted in. Um and we had like, oh my God, this is so awful. We had like a two minute transition between scenes at one point because just Ooh, the way that they deadly. designed they designed the set it was like 
it was cool in that it was like folding in on itself, but literally it would take two, I think almost two and a half minutes to change between one, two of the scenes in the show. And it was always so excruciating, like Mm. to leave the audience in the dark for that long. Like it was, it was so bad. (laughs) I think, you know, I think blackouts are the same as brownouts. Like if you just turn on a blue light, (laughs) <laughs> and have them move it in blue light like that's the same thing to me it's just like it's a missed opportunity you know and I think as a director I'm just looking for every opportunity I can to continue to forward the story without doing too much you know and that that mm-hmm. there does come a fine line and there have been moments where I'm like David you're doing too much. Just get the sofa <laughs> off stage. You know, this doesn't need to be like the fucking ballet in the middle of West Side Story. It's just a transition, you know, and how can you do it as efficient and as in as imaginative as possible, you know, um, without making it go on too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, thank you for indulging me on that. I just wanted to... I love it. <laughs> I'm going to pull back and reel it in a little bit so we can like actually get to know you, but I feel like we just got like a major insight on your vision. I feel like that says a lot of what an opinionated <laughs> bitch I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I already know it, but now the listeners know it. So I'm going to pull back. You you mentioned uh, very briefly, you made reference to you being, you, you being a designer. So we'll get we'll get into that as well, because I know that you have a, an extensive background in costume design. Um, but I do want to like pull back like far back and talk a little bit more about just you growing up and become and growing into the artist that you you've become a little bit. So if you can just um, share with us a little bit about, you know, I know that you're originally from Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a very an, uh, I don't know what feels like a very distant land. Um, <laughs> even if you're in the state right next to it. Um, but yeah, just share with us a little bit about like yeah. how you grew up and, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I was born in Boston. Um, I don't remember living there at all. Um, my family moved immediately pretty quickly after I was born to New York. And, um, I spent the first four years of my life in Queens and Ozone Park. And I vaguely Uh-oh. remember that, you know, um, It was the early, uh, well, I guess mid eighties in New York. Um, I remember my, my mother was a school teacher and I remember she had this colleague, this coworker who I used to call Theo Alvarez. Um, (laughs) and my dad was like, you know, he's not your uncle. And he was this gay man, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the eighties in New York. And I just like, really like had a, like a a love for him, a connection to him. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, that, that was my like New York memory, like that I fondly remember, but we quickly moved to Orlando. I think some of that was my family wanting to raise us somewhere where we couldn't get educated. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) but like, uh, no, just to like get out of New York in the eighties and, and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the AIDS epidemic was like in full swing and, Um, There was just a lot happening. And so they had some family friends who were like, come down to Orlando. And, you know, when we moved down there, it was like orange groves and Disney. And that was it, (laughs) you know, so like growing up, it was really like, I remember like there was a giant orange grove right next to our house. And 
you know, I, I think I always had a sort of wild active imagination. Like I remember running through the orange grove, pretending that I was like being like chased by a witch or something and like <laughs> having this like wild, fantastic imagination or like wanting to play with my sister's Barbie dolls, you know, and like mm. um, being banned from playing with Barbie dolls, but still finding a way to like play with them and like make clothes for them and and always like this desire to sort of create and tell story. And I think so much of that was fueled by my father, who's uh, an immigration attorney. He's he's an immigrant from Ecuador and has his own business. He's an immigration attorney. And I remember when I was young in the summer, I would go work with him at his office and like make copies and like organize stuff. And <laughs> And the, on special days, like I like got to go to court with him, and like that to me was oh my, like gosh. my first theatrical experience. You know, yeah. like in my mind, like my father was up there like an actor, like monologuing, and like while I didn't fully comprehend, I think I there was a part of me that really understood that like it was life-changing you know and he had mm -hmm. the potential to like change people's lives and he's such a master storyteller like he just knows how to like spin a story and so like at dinner like you know we I remember him standing up and he would just tell us the stories of of, of his life and his day and his clients and before there was language so many of them were about queer or trans people who were seeking asylum from the their country of origin wow. you know and I just remember like recognizing like that, like everyone had a story and like to have your story be told could change lives, you know? And so like, that was always my like interest in theater started there. And then like, I saw the Phantom of the Opera. And so like, it was just like, okay, like game on, like how gay <laughs> and eighties can we get, you know? Yeah. Um, so like, I loved that. And then really in order to go to a better high school than the high school that I was zoned for, mm -hmm. um, I applied for this theater magnet program at, uh, uh, at, at Dr. Phillips High School and it was kind of life-changing you know it was um an incredible program um we had this many incredible teachers um who uh really instilled in us hard work mm -hmm. and agency and you know they were a little cray cray at times and you know <laughs> like as drama know, teachers are <laughs> as drama teachers are you know the dramatics but like I really I learned about a living American playwrights and I and I I had a real mm. fond appreciation for theater and the way theater was made and producing and funnily enough like it's a title that like probably of all the many hats that I wear producing is the title that I, I adopted last mm -hmm. and yet I think like since the beginning it's what I've been doing you know I was a school one of my thespian troop officers you know and <laughs> um was like producing trips to New York, you know, with with 55 students to go to oh. college tours. And I was mm -hmm. like getting the rights to do our musicals and helping with marketing. And so like that was, you know, I was I I I, I think theater just it was the place where I felt um I could be most of the parts of myself in mm -hmm. high school, you know, and um I felt cool and I was not you know and I I felt like I had a, a place of belonging and and it was challenging and, and 
you know, before I did theater, I was in martial arts. And so like, I think like the combination <laughs> of like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a black belt actually. I'm in Tonksudo. And like, oh, the, shit. I don't and think I, I knew like, that. <laughs> I, yeah. And I was like teaching kids classes, you know, I was in middle school and I was teaching like mm. these like kids classes. And so I think like all throughout like middle school and high school, like the the sense of leadership and teaching and producing and and storytelling, like these things all sort of came together. And, you know, I remember I was also smart. Um, you know, I, I, I set my mind to it my freshman year of high school. I was like, I'm going to be a valedictorian of my, my high school. Cause I <laughs> found out what that meant and I did. And, you know, I was one of my high school valedictorians. We were a giant school. So there were a, a handful of us. And like, that was something that was important to me. Like I wanted to, um, show that I could, um, and, and I, I don't know why I just was like excited by it. I was like, this is cool. And I'm going to do this. And so, you know, I think for my, my family and my, my mother specifically, she, she saw, you know, I think for her, she didn't see an opportunity for someone like me, mm. Brown, first of all, you know, but also effeminate and, you know, before there was language queer and before there was language, you know, gender queer and, mm -hmm. you know, like there, there wasn't spaces for us, you know, like for her, when she was growing up, there was Rosie Perez and that was it. The one Puerto Rican, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, so that was a challenge sort of, proving to my family that this could be a career and that there's this was a pathway and it wasn't just this sort of after school club but it was a real life calling yeah absolutely and which that then that life calling would eventually post high school lead you back to new york and yes. end up at nyu so we'll get right into that we'll be right back All right, welcome back. We are here with our guest, David Mendezabo. And just before the break, we we're talking uh, about their upbringing, you know, which I, some of the things I there were some of these things I didn't even know. I didn't know you were born in Boston. I didn't know that you were in New York, for like the first couple years of your life, then heading uh, down to Florida um, and spending, you know, most of your adolescence there. Um, but we were just about to get into, you know, talking about your discovery and and love and passion for storytelling and and just wanting to um just to tell to tell stories mm. um and you know after going to performing arts high school you know then obviously you got accepted to New York University yes. and that took you back to New York at what i'm assuming 18 17 yeah. 18 18 years old it was um two years after 9-11 and it was two mm. weeks after the blackout um and oh, wow. you know, I remember being in my grandparents house and my mom was like um that's New York and that's where you're moving in two weeks and there's no power you know um and so it was it was a kind of scary time um when I really like think back on it now I'm like oh my gosh I could not imagine the sort of like emotional distress that my family was under of like here's where you're going you know and I was the first mm. of my siblings to leave the house and and yeah you know so I went to NYU I was at um Playwrights Horizons Theater School which I remember like reading about playwrights and being like that's it like that's where I want to go um, you know, the idea of being a whole artist, you know, I auditioned as an actor, I knew I did not want to be an actor. 
And part of that was because I just was like, what is there for me? Really? You know, I, I, I was like, you know, now like there's maybe more, right. Mm -hmm. But like, then I was like, what am I going to do? You know? (laughs) Um, so, but I knew that I wanted to direct. And so I went to playwrights and, and while I was there, you know, we had to design each other's shows. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had um, really incredible design teachers who all happened to be costume designers. And like my, my grandmother was a seamstress. Um, she made wedding dresses in New York when oh she was younger. Gosh. And so like, I grew up around sewing, like I would design my Halloween costumes and like costuming was something that like I didn't really know was an option but they really encouraged me and sort of pushed me into that and and supported me to uh step into that and so I started designing and you know at the same time I was directing and you know I I think it was in college where I first heard the term artist of color um mm. it was a a teacher of mine Ruben Palendo um, who's an amazing director, an amazing artist. And he was our one of our directing teachers. And he was the first person who said that. And I remember looking at a friend of mine and we were like, that's it. That's what we are. You know, like there was something about that language that just empowered us um, to an understanding of who we were as, you know, artists that were neither black nor white um, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a world that was sort of very binary in its thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like, that's, that's what we are. And that was the kind of work that excited us. And, you know, honestly, like some of the relationships that I have made from like my very first production at NYU have been instrumental to like the rest of my entire life. Like mm-hmm. Jonathan McCrory, who's now the artistic director of the National Black Theater and Eric Lockley, who mm-hmm. um, I, both of whom were founders of our company, the Movement Theater Company and, and um who Eric is still one of the producing artistic leaders, like they were in the very first play I ever directed at NYU. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I remember like in auditions, like walking outside and seeing Jonathan and was like, you, are you auditioning for my play? And he was like, <laughs> I wasn't planning on it, but I will. And, you know, it was this like amazing, um, the birth of this amazing relationship with two people who have shaped the person that I am today and the kind of artist and the values that I have and and have challenged me to continue to dig deeper into who I am and to show up better and stronger for myself and for the community that I I, I serve, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so yeah, like, I mean, so many of those relationships early on shaped and where I am now, you know, I just closed the ground floor and Eric yeah. was here developing a piece um, at Berkeley Rep with um, uh, uh, Sharif Ali, the, the Sweet Chariot. And it's just yeah. like, you know, 20 something years of making art together is 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 beautiful. Yeah, that's so funny. I feel like it's a tale as old as time that a lot of these like long lasting the- theater relationships in particular begin with like bullying, someone bullying the other one to do something with them or for them. Because <laughs> that, that, I mean, like that's how I ended up even doing theater in the first place. I, you know, I, I didn't even... I didn't come into contact with theater till I was 16, but it was me moving back to a city I'd previously lived in. So I like already the, the, the people that I had previously hung out with in middle school now in high school were the theater kids. And I literally, my friend Samantha Vega 
<laughs> told me one day when I had gotten back into town and it was my it was our junior year of high school she said well you're gonna have to audition and get into the fall play because if you don't then you have nothing to talk about at lunch so it was like this like peer yeah. pressure of like okay I guess you know this is something that I've been interested in but now I have this like this motivation I guess to like go and do it and then the rest is history yeah. Um, that's so funny. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, and you mentioned, um, you mentioned the movement theater company. Um, so where, where exactly does the, the founding of, of the movement theater company, um, fall in, in the timeline of your life yeah. and, and also like, tell us, tell us what the movement theater company is. Yeah. So, you know, while we were students at NYU, Jonathan and Eric, along with several other artists and um, um, faculty, started a group at NYU called The Collective. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was specifically a desire for Black artists to be able to focus on work from the diaspora. Um mm -hmm. And it was uh, an inclusive group that many of us were members of. And, and it was a desire to just continue to um, support um, Black work and Black stories being told. Um, and so that was really the, the sort of preamble to the movement. Um, and then when Eric and I graduated, there was a meeting. So I was not invited to the first meeting. So technically, I'm not a founding member, but <laughs> I was around that first year. But there was a meeting and it was 12 artists, writers, actors, directors, who all just said, you know what, like, we want to continue to make theater together. And I think the original sin that we always say about the movement theater company is that that no one really wanted to form a theater company. Like we all sort <laughs> of accidentally stumbled into that mm -hmm. um, for wonderful, right? But um, a theater company was formed and I was invited in that first year as a director. And then um, our founding artistic director stepped down. And I remember getting this call that was like, do you want to like interview and I and I was like sure I don't know what this means and then I remember going <laughs> to the interview and I just cried I was like I just want to make theater for my people you know and like had no idea what I was talking about and they were like you got the job <laughs> and I was like okay and so you know like thus started the movement which is now with this year we're turning 16 it's our sweet 16 oh my gosh um, yeah and you know over the years over the first five years there was you know a lot of growing curve and one of the things we realized was like we didn't need to model ourselves in in the vein of the sort of traditional models that have been existed, you know, and so like some of mm -hmm. those were quite oppressive and we had this um, amazing consultant firm that helped us to realize that like actually you know, we were leading in a new way. We were, or not necessarily a new way, but we were, the way that we were leading was non-hierarchical and that we were really this collective. Um, mm -hmm. And so the producing artistic leadership team was formed, which is what what the leadership team of the movement is. And, you know, um, uh, the movement theater company, our, our mission is we create an artistic social movement by developing and producing new work by artists of color. And uh, we like to say that we're really focused on the sort of Herculean works, the things that people would say no to. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think early on, a lot of the artists that we were really excited by were artists who were being shut out of both 
the white institutions and also the institutions of color, right? Like their work didn't fit into any of the nice little boxes that people wanted it to fit into. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so thus started like our, what we were excited by, you know, and we, we produced a lot of incredible work. And, and I think more than that really developed community and gave opportunity to artists um, including ourselves where, mm-hmm. where there wasn't and invested in building a network um, that has continued, I think, you know, to provide platforms for people to show all that they can be and do and mm-hmm. open up doors for them beyond um, the movement. Um, so it's really, you know, it's it's really incredible to see some of the artists who we said yes to first. Yeah. Now working on Broadway, you mm-hmm. know, and and not to take any credit for that. Right. Like, it's not like, oh, we did it. We discovered you, you know. No, it's like yeah. you were an artist that was looking for a home that was looking for someone to say yes to your brilliance. Mm-hmm. And we saw that and we nurtured it and we... Mm-hmm. um said yes and we challenged you and we hopefully made space for you to challenge us to mm-hmm. continue to grow together and um and here you are in all of your brilliance you know getting getting to work and and I think that's the the greatest thing that could we could have ever asked for you know is mm-hmm. the the people that we knew were brilliant everyone gets to see that now yeah i i will say i still I'm always going to credit the movement for giving me one of like the most uh, most memorable theatrical experiences of my life, uh, which came in the form of Alicia Harris's What to Send Up When It Goes Down. I still remember it was December 2018 going to see it at um, the, the was it ART. Um, Art New York Theaters. Yeah. Art New York Theaters. Yeah. And that, you know, directed by Whitney White. And I, you know, seeing something like that, I, I was like. Oh, it this is this it felt ritualistic. It felt like even and you know, like that that particular play is like is for specific folks and those of us who do not identify in that particular in that particular set of folks are invited to, you know, be observers and and sort of active participants in that ritual. Um and it's very it was very humbling and just like beautifully beautifully written beautifully directed and just something that i will always like credit as like oh this expanded my idea of what theater could be yeah you know and sort of uh, talking a little bit to what you were saying earlier that disruption or that movement towards something towards the future right which which a lot of people don't seem to be getting right now especially in this particular moment um and we'll get to that but <laughs> but um yeah and you know and that that obviously went on to to tour you guys went down to DC at Woolly Mammoth you went to uh, American Repertory Theater I believe in in yeah. in Boston um you were part of the Under the Radar Festival at the Public Theater um, am I forgetting anything? I feel like we it, went to BAM and then to Playwrights Horizons and Playwrights Horizons that's right yeah all all over the place so just the 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 way that that show got to expand outward and like get more mm-hmm. audiences involved and also community projects going too because i remember at woolly they they had a whole like art uh, installation that people yeah. can, could could contribute to um yeah uh yeah. very very wonderful 
And so much of that, I think, is a testament to just Alicia saying yes to us. You know, I think Mm -hmm. it's one thing to say yes to an artist. And it's another thing for an artist to say yes to you, especially with a piece as special and as I hate saying important, right? It's a love letter. It's a love letter to Black people. It Mm -hmm. is a a call to action. It is a ritual, right? It is -hmm. is healing. And, you know, a lot of people said no to Alicia with that Mm -hmm. play. A lot Mm -hmm. of people said no. And like, we were fortunate to have Chris Myers and the, the, the team at Interfest send that piece to us. And we said, yes, but, but more than that, the artist said, you know what, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to trust you to, 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 to carry this forward and, and, and allowed us to introduce her to Whitney and to bring her on and the team on. And, you know, um, it was a, one of the most rewarding experiences of my producing life of just growth and placing the values ahead of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to this idea of like the, the collective and building building something that sort of is disruptive to movements, um, I do also, I, I feel like I, I have to, to touch a little bit, at least a little bit on um, the Soul Project. Absolutely. Um, so we'll get into that in just a moment. So we'll be right back. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're here with our guest David Mendezabal. Uh, we're moving forward, getting to to know their work um, with the Moving Theater Company, and now we're going to talk a little bit about where our life paths first uh, intersected, and that was through the Soul Project, which, um, and I still remember this, even a year later, Soul Pro- the Soul Project is a national theater initiative dedicated to amplifying Latina playwrights in New York City and beyond, as well as providing, um, amplifying the voices of artists of color. But I know, you know, I, I joined the Soul Project in early 2019, and was was with the the group until about a year uh, about a year ago now until about August of 2022, but that initiative definitely started way way before that. I know the launch took place in 2016, but you, Jacob, Adriana, had all been in and 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 more, uh, more folks had all been in conversation. I think I, I if I'm remembering correctly, it was at the Latinx Theater Commons convening in 2013. In my right about that another first meeting that i was not invited to (laughs) i was not invited and let the record show that i was not invited to two of the first meetings of the soul project one being the latinx theater commons you know convening in boston and then two being (laughs) meeting that jacob put together at the public that i was not invited to um i did not make the cut you know let the record show (laughs) no but true um, so no, yeah, yes, but that, you know, the, I mean, the the convening in Boston was where the idea started, you know, and, and again, that's a, it was a vision of, of, of Jacobs, um, and it was in response to what he was hearing from a community of artists who were like, readings are cute, workshops are cute, mm-hmm. relationships are nice, but like, a production, like, that is where there is impact, where your work can be seen, where you can make a living, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for for him, it was like, what can I do with the platform that I have, the resources that I have, the network that I have, who can I gather and how can we 
um, see to it that this need is attended to and and thus sort of became the soul project. And, you know, um, I remember being connected to Jacob through a dear friend of mine, um, Alex Meda, who um, they had worked together mm-hmm. in Chicago and was like, you should meet this artist um, and this leader. He's incredible. And you know, he's going to be out in New York. And, you know, I was going to say we had margaritas, but really I had margaritas and Jacob watched me drink um, <laughs> margaritas and, um, you know, told me about this idea that he had. And and I was just so fuck. Yeah. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I would love to see our stories on the same stages as the Sarah rules, the Terrell McCraney's, the Annie Baker's, you know, like I would love mm-hmm. to see and to get to know more of our writers and to support their work in the American theater, because our stories are part of the American theater. And, mm-hmm. you know, I will say we started in our first production was in 2017, right? Mm-hmm. 2017. Yeah. And- Alligator. Yeah, alligator at New George's and um, or w- with New George's, and you know, I I think there have been moments that have been very exciting, and there continues to be a dearth of our stories and mm-hmm. the complexity and the diversity of our stories, not just in New York but across the country, across the field. We continue to be left out. Our mission has never been more important than now. And we are not alone. There are so many organizations across the country that are dedicated to amplifying and supporting. And so many companies that are committed to amplifying, supporting the work of Latinx and, you know, Latina playwrights, um, or Latini, as like I like to say, you know, get ahead <laughs> of the game, you know, and 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 you know, and there's still more work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to be able to 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 get to like the the now here. So in 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 the spirit of practicing non closure, as one of my professors would say, I'm gonna um, move a little bit past this, but not quite because it's still here with us. If people are interested in learning more about Soul Project, they can visit soulproject.org. Um, and check out all the productions that have taken place. Eight out of 12 have been completed um, so far. And I know that there's more coming because I still have the in. <laughs> but yes, so I do, you know, I ended up joining at an interesting time because you all had just finished doing El Uragan at Yale Repertory Theater in the fall of 2018. And, you know, in 2019, there was there was sort of this break in productions but that's kind of where I really got my start in, in producing. And that ended up being a lot of like developmental workshops and readings and 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 being a part of Soul Fest and and you know, just like really cutting my teeth in in that. And then of course, um, you know, the world stopped <laughs> for a brief moment in 2020. Well, a brief moment in re- in now, but at the time it did not feel brief. And a lot of uproar, a lot of unrest, and a lot of, um, I think, investigating took place and continues to take place for some. And now we're in this, you know, over three years after that initial, you know, shock of the world, the great pause or the intermission or whatever, you know, the field, field cause it. We're now in this place where it feels like a lot of folks have done a lot of reevaluating and a lot of folks have have not 
really. And when I say folks, I mean, like, inst- I'm referring to like large institutions. You know, we're recording this in August. So obviously, this will this is coming out in September. But even in the last few weeks, in particular, especially in July, there were there have been so many opinion pieces about theater. And again, the theater is dying, you know, like this sort of like devastating narrative this 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 obsession with like the fear of death or something or the or you know uh, a narrative that doesn't really create space for rebirth or reconstruction or just an analyzing of what does it mean to move forward and sort of reevaluate our values and 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 whatnot and now and now you are in a in a in a place where you are now the associate artistic director of a very large institution the Berkeley Repertory Theater uh, in Berkeley California so I'm I'm curious to know I I really want to hear um what your opinions are about our current moment because I know you have them and how that is intersecting with your work now being a leader at a large institution like this. Yeah, you know, I will say I feel very hashtag blessed to be working at Berkeley Repertory Theater. You know, we are, as you said, a, a, a large institution in, in Berkeley, California. I just love the staff, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love working at a place where people love theater, you mm-hmm. know, um, where people love artists, where there is still a passion and a drive for the artistry of what we do. And, and I, you know, I look around and I, I listen to, and I read the stories that are like happening all across the field. And, you know, it does break my heart that that's not the case everywhere. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat it and not say that we don't have our own, you know, list of, Sure. things and uh uh that 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 we are working on and and that we are dodging and you know whatnot but I do feel like it's an incredible institution that I get to call home right now and I get to continue the work that I was doing but now at a space where there are more resources where there is a greater opportunity to continue to build community expand community to challenge the status quo and mm-hmm. to help the field by putting out into the world more work. You know, we just finished our ground floor and we developed mm-hmm. over, you know, 20 projects and, you know, some wow. of which oh will, will have further <laughs> life at Berkeley Rep and some of which I hope will find other homes that, that you know, are, are going to jump on it before we can, you know, because mm-hmm. um, it's just incredible work. There are incredible artists out there that are really um, meeting this moment. And I think that that's what I think about first and foremost are the artists, you know, and how are we supporting them truly? You know, being inside of an institution in this moment is a particularly interesting scenario because like I really haven't been inside of institutions aside from like one moment in my life where where I had a, a brief stint at an institution. Um, oh, like, right. I, I really have been outside <laughs> of it. I've been you know, doing the grassroots sort of storefront, my own sort of theater building community. And so to be here now, like I, I really recognize like a lot of the struggles, a lot of it is, you know, the the 
American theater's relationship to capitalism and like, how can we get out from under that to really Mm -hmm. be about it and support the values that we say we're about? I don't envy anyone who's running a theater right now who is trying to (laughs) um, tackle this while funding continues to be cut while um, scarcity continues to be the sort of driving force, mm-hmm. you know, I seek abundance and I seek new models and I seek interrogating the way things that have always been in an effort to um, think more expansively on how we can show up and support the people that we say we're supporting, which includes our audiences, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and and includes the ways in which we're engaging with them and expanding them. And it's a, it's a lot. Like I, I, to be honest, like I have not kept up with the many think pieces. Um, so I wish I could <laughs> be more <laughs> informed about them. Well, I have, I have, a, I have a question, yeah. um, really quick, uh, not to interrupt, but what there's there there have been a couple think pieces but i'm thinking of one in particular where someone made a comment about their opinion that that institutions pivoted too quickly to diversifying their programming and that's one of the reasons why everything's falling apart what do you think about that <laughs> i think the institution pivoted too late actually do you know what i mean I, mm-hmm. I i don't know that we would be here if it didn't take a the public lynching of a black man to like make anyone realize that those stories mattered and and that those artists mattered and that those those artists deserved to be telling those stories on our stages i don't think it's a, a fast pivot i think if anything it's too late you know or not too late at all because it's never too late but it wasn't happening fast enough. It was reactive instead of really asking itself, like, what are the values? What are we mm-hmm. actually doing? You know, What's I think the intention. Yeah, a real intentional movement building, a real intentional audience building. You know, I think there's, again, like, I just keep thinking back to like growing up and like hearing the potency of my father telling people's stories and like, those stories shaped the way I understood about people and human rights and Mm, what, mm -hmm. what people needed and wanted just to survive. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Just to be themselves. And I think that as, as a field, as a, as an art form, you know, the stories that we put on stage really can and do change and shape the world. And you know, I think it's not enough to be reactive to the moment because theater takes so long, you know, like 10 mm-hmm. years later and you're seeing a, a play about something that happened 10 years ago and you're like, it's j- too late, not enough, you know, yeah. and 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 not saying like, churn things out faster, like, you know, underdevelop and overproduce them. Like, no, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, but I'm saying like, how are we really investing in the communities that we want to build? How are we really listening to the work that's needed? How are we really supporting artists? How are we really being intentional about the ways in which we are shifting programming? And like, to be honest, you see it in, you see it out of a lot of theaters that are their season planning that's happening now. It's like the money has dried up, the the government funding <laughs> has dried up and the the, mm-hmm. the quick bounce back to all white seasons to mm-hmm. all white creative teams, to um, the same old status quo, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know, it's done, it, a lot of it was done without intention. And I and I recognize like there is great risk and there is financial risk and there is, 
a real unfortunate lack of imagination and which is interesting considering it's theater <laughs> yeah yeah and and i think so much of it is tied to it's again like what i was saying it's tied to its relationship to capitalism you know and that just like mm-hmm. kills imagination for so many and and yet there are so many I, of artists and leaders who I just know are visioning forward. And I don't know, at, at this moment, I don't think it's like, you know, put them in an institution because I don't know that that's the place that's going to foster their, that always is going to be able to foster that imagination, you know, but I don't know, you know, I, I it, it's such an, in, it's such an unelegant answer right now is this, I don't know, you know, I think what we need now more than ever are those artists who are able to think expansively, vision mm-hmm. forward, think abundantly, care and include their audiences, forge ahead in these times to tell the stories that we need to hear that are going to heal and expand our consciousness. Absolutely. Would you mind sharing a few names of those artists, those those folks that you feel are are doing that? Uh, I think, you know, Jesse Cameron Alec, who is an incredible leader and dramaturg and just a beacon of light, Annalisa Diaz, mm-hmm. who I'm obsessed with, Alex Meda, who I, is one of my best friends, and just doing the work to help, you know, facilitate conversation. You know, I mean, Alicia Harris, you mentioned, who I just mm-hmm. think is a writer of exceptional talent and mm-hmm. power. You know, um, I mean, there are so many artists. I could keep going <laughs> on and on and on. But, you know, I just think some of these people who are are leading with with full heart forward, whose worlds I long to be a part of, you know, mm-hmm. Samora La Perdida, who I just, <laughs> yes. like, my gosh, that, that, what a, what a heart and spirit she has. And like to be in her orbit is such a gift, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, thank you. Oh my gosh, our time has like come come to an end, unfortunately. In this moment, you and I get to remain friends for the rest of our lives and yeah. talk, talk more shit until the day we die. But for now, for our listeners, this is where the, the, the time ends. I know that this fall you have some projects coming up. Would you like to share a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, in this fall, I will be at Berkeley Rep. Um, We have a really exciting and robust season of big, theatrical, fabulous plays and musicals that I think are really exciting. Um, So I'll be here working on that. Um, And then in the winter, spring, I head to Baltimore and D.C. to do a co-pro between Baltimore Center Stage and Mosaic Theater of an incredible two-person looping live looping musical called Mexodus written by Brian Quijada and Nigel D. Robinson that I am directing and costume designing. Um, so that'll Work. be really thrilling. Again, you know. again with the double again, title. <laughs> you know. And then at the end of the season, I am really incredibly honored to close out our Berkeley Rep 23-24 season with Octavio Solis's Mother Road. And uh, mm-hmm. it's an incredible play that I first fell in love with in 2015 at the Latinx Theater Commons. And, you know, we nurtured and developed and tried to get produced <laughs> through the Salt Project, but, you know, racism. 
And so, you know, hopefully New York, you know, catch up. Um, it's gonna and be- that's and and that's on the other institutions part. I want to I want to make sure that oh, that's yes. clear. Oh, Not yes. on Soul no, Project's no, no. part. <laughs> we we did the thing. Yeah, you know, like our Ariana Bo said, like Hanjala Bassett, we did the thing, you know, but everyone else <laughs> d- did not. Did not do the thing. Yeah. Well, so, they did. They did the other thing. That's not so great. <laughs> I'm very grateful to Berkeley Rep for saying mm-hmm. yes and for you know welcoming me and Octavio to dream more life into this play, which did get a production outside of New York um, mm-hmm. at OSF and at the arena right before uh, the pandemic shut down. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, but I think these stories need to be seen far and wide. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you're in the Bay Area or if you're down in the DMV, make sure you check out these productions, y'all. Um, again, Debbie, thank you so much for being here and for being my very, very, very first guest for the Mix of the Podcast. It's been such an honor and I love you so much. Thank you. Bye. Hi, everyone. Welcome back from the break. I just completed my interview with my very first guest, David Mendezabel, my dear, dear friend and collaborator from the last mm, four, almost five years. Very grateful to them and their expertise and taking the time to chat with us for our very first premiere episode of the Mix It Up podcast. Couldn't have thought of another person to be my first guest. As we briefly mentioned, David and I co-hosted the Soul Talk podcast for the Soul Project for three whole seasons and interviewed a plethora of people. That's still available for folks to listen to if you'd like to check it out. It is an extension of the Soul Project, as we mentioned in the episode. Um, Very briefly, Soul Project is the uh, whole point of the initiative is to partner with 12 off-Broadway theaters uh, in New York City and for them to produce a play written by a Latino, Latine, Latinx playwright and create a shift, a seismic shift within the industry. You know, so there is there is a point where the initiative will sunset. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's meant to create that shift and get folks to commit to uh, producing more works by Latino, Latine, Latinx playwrights. The reason why I'm saying all three is because it's pretty contentious. There are folks who use different uh, words to describe them, and I want to make sure that we're being inclusive here. I personally like to use the term Latinx as my identifier, but that's that's the reason why I'm saying all three. <laughs> But yeah, I am just so grateful for this opportunity to be able to uh, sit down with incredible folks that I've come across in my life and hear from them and and hear what they're working on, what they're doing and what they, you know, what they've achieved in their lives so far and what they hope to achieve in the future. And I really do hope that uh, these conversations bring some inspiration to you if you are also a creator who has these intersecting identities of being someone of the global majority and also uh, identifying as LGBTQ+. Um, I think we're in a very unique position when we have those intersecting identities because, you know, the the perspective that comes with it is that we already, our very existence is something that disrupts, you know, the status quo. These things that are centered into society, like being cisgender, being white, being male, being heterosexual, 
when your very existence as a human being is disruptive to that system of power that has been established for so long, it gives you a perspective in a way that requires you to think outside the box a lot of the time in order to make space for yourself, in order to make yourself seen in spaces or to be heard in spaces where that dominant ideology is taking place. And, you know, the world continues to change and the world continues to shift. And I really, really hope that for the sake of our future and for, you know, the next seven generations ahead of us, we can create and manifest a new world that creates a new center that create that starts to provide more opportunity and more conversation around supporting folks who have continued to be marginalized and underrepresented across the world and across all forms of media and storytelling you know i think it's really the the power of narrative narrative is very powerful narrative construction and design is very powerful and has informed so much of history and i'm really hoping you know that i can play my own little part in restructuring narrative and creating new narratives and you know building building a vision and hope for the future that uh, that includes us in positions of leadership that includes us as the ones who are not just on screen and on stage but also the ones who are producing writing directing all around in a production um, and being able to have a say in what the marketing and distribution and exhibition of our projects look like being able to engage with our community that is authentic uh, in a way that is authentic and in a way that actually creates long-lasting relationship for you know the powers that be and for long-standing institutions so i'm so grateful to you for listening and for joining me along this journey we have nine more episodes this season i'm so excited to be kicking off fall with this project and until next time thanks so much for tuning in thank you for listening to the mix of the podcast Feel free to support us further by commenting, rating, and subscribing on your preferred podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at, at @mixituppod. Mix It Up is produced, hosted, and edited by Joey Reyes. Enjoy our music. Please check out DJ and new media artist Professor Rex on Instagram at, at @professor underscore Rex. That's W R E C K S. Until next time, remember to mix it up. <laughs>